Hello and welcome to the Longevity Now podcast. Recently, I've been reflecting upon the last 20 or so years I've been involved with life extension advocacy. I've seen a lot of change, a lot of new developments, and a lot of hype. The one thing I have not seen is any supplement or therapy I can use that is proven to reverse any aspect of human aging. Now, I know there are some companies and biohackers out there who claim to have developed methods to reverse certain aspects of aging, and some of them, you might recall, have been on the podcast, but these are either just emerging or not widely available at a reasonable cost, or there's no solid evidence behind them just quite yet. 20 years, no treatments yet, and I'm getting older. That's why this episode's guest is important. Dr. Brad Stanfield wants to engage in real translational human research involving rapamycin. The sooner the better. Have a listen. And now I would like to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Brad Stanfield. Welcome aboard. Thanks a lot for having me. Yes, and we have you on the podcast, of course, to talk about a new exciting trial involving rapamycin. But before we get to that, how about you give the audience just a little background on yourself, what you do, and how you got involved with Lifespan.io and uh, this particular research project? Yeah, so I'm a 30-year-old medical doctor from New Zealand. So my full-time job is actually working at the clinic, seeing patients, you know, treating things like diabetes, high blood pressure, trying to prevent disease before it happens. And I run a YouTube channel that we've gone on now for about two years. And I started that channel because I realized that there were so many people out there who do want to prevent disease before it happens and try and extend their health span and ideally lifespan. The trouble is they didn't really have a good resource that focused specifically on research, human research. So there's a lot of people who do what I do, but they focus on my starter or cell data and extrapolate from there. And that can lead you down some dangerous paths. So I wanted to create a resource that just focuses on human data and again, ways to extend health span. Great. And something that is sorely lacking, I think, is translational type research in human beings. Uh, we have so many uh, results from mice. And so that's great to hear. Uh, have you hooked up with any other doctors in other parts of the world who feel the same? Uh, because from the standpoint of the listeners, you know, we see all of the, of course, animal research, but it, the human trials just seem so rare. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, PhDs that I've reached out to. So, for example, Dr. Charles Brenner, uh, Dr. Matt Caberline, Professor Brian Kennedy. Uh, and I'd love to be able to have you know, someone like Dr. Peter Atia, who's also a medical doctor um, on the channel and discuss things. I haven't quite reached out to him as of yet. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of exciting research that's going on. But as you say, we've got all of this high quality data from the preclinical world. Now I think we need to translate it to humans. And that's what you're going to attempt to do with rapamycin. It has a long history and many people might be familiar with rapamycin as an anti-rejection, organ rejection uh, supplement or therapeutic uh, when people get organ transplants. That's how I first heard of it. Of course, there's been a lot of other research recently. Could you tell us a little bit about rapamycin just to kind of inform the audience its history and some of the recent research that had led you up to this point? Yeah. So when looking at my starter, I think it's important to focus on what in my opinion is the creme de la creme of my starter, which is from the interventions testing program. So this is a program that runs experiments on molecules each year to see which ones will actually extend mice lifespan. But what's different about this 
program is that they run the same experiment in three separate labs. So we can see whether the data is reproducible or not. And they also use mice that are genetically heterogeneous. Essentially, that just means that they're uh, genetically diverse. So it matches the human population. We're not inbred, whereas a lot of the mice data, they use inbred mice. So when rapamycin is trialed by the interventions testing program, over and over again, it extends both male and female lifespan. So that's a very interesting finding. And because of its mechanism of action, I think that it will improve muscle performance in older adults. So that's what I want to focus on with my research. I want to see if taking rapamycin once a week and combining it with exercise, whether that would give greater muscle performance compared to just exercise alone. And how did you come to this idea as far as testing rapamycin in muscle performance versus other types of metrics of aging, functional or you know, biological? I think we should dive into how rapamycin actually works. So rapamycin, it targets an enzyme in the body called mTOR. So you may have heard people who go to the gym talking about mTOR. So they want to activate mTOR because that builds muscle. Whereas rapamycin, it switches mTOR off. So you might think initially, well, that seems like a daft idea to be using rapamycin when you and switch off mTOR. Surely you'd actually make muscle performance worse. But what actually seems to happen as we age, the body seems to try and combat the age-associated decline in muscle performance by overactivating mTOR. The trouble with overactivating mTOR is that you're never actually clearing away old cell components. So when you're activating mTOR, yes, you're trying to build muscle, but you switch off a process called autophagy, which is the cell clearance process. And it seems that you need both. You need both periods of time where you're switching mTOR on, but also times where you're switching mTOR off and you're recycling or clearing away old components. So it seems that as we age, we're chronically switching on mTOR. We're never getting rid of these old components and they're getting in the way, they're causing all sorts of oxidative stress. And we need periods of time with rapamycin to, to switch mTOR off and clear away all those old components. Okay, now you mentioned that mTOR is switched on too often as we age. And perhaps that could be a effect of the human body trying to build muscle that it's losing. But is there any data on that that specifically shows that's the reason, or is it some other form of dysregulation that's occurring? Not that it's, say, I don't know, I, I hate to use the term, a willful attempt by the body to try and build muscle, but rather it's just uh, becomes dysregulated, the balance between uh, being on and off because of other aging type of damage. Yeah, I don't think we're quite sure as to why mTOR is switched on but we can see from human muscle biopsies that as we age, mTOR is switched on more in older muscle. So that's I, so I don't think we know the exact reason for that. But again, it seems that by the body always switching on mTOR, we actually worsen muscle performance. So I think that's why we need periods of time again where we're switching it on, but also off as well. Okay, and I wanted to back up a little bit about mTOR being a very essential kinase or enzyme in everyone's cells, in fact, all mammalian cells. I've read that it's the primary regulator of cell metabolism and maintenance, or one of the most effective or influential regulators in within the cell. Is that true? 
there's actually been an interesting paper published by Dr. Matt Caberline looking at different diets that people use for so-called anti-aging purposes. One of the interesting ideas from that paper is that all of these diets are actually, their influence is through mTOR, as in periods of time, you've got certain diets that will switch mTOR on more compared to other diets. So mTOR is vital for our metabolism and for how it's regulated. So with rapamycin, I think that's why we're seeing such awesome effects from the interventions testing program, because this enzyme, it controls so many different things and influences so many different systems. Yeah, that's right. And I, I suppose that might make you wonder also about, and our listeners wonder about side effects, obviously, because it is used as an anti-rejection medication right now. It's pretty powerful in, in certain doses. And have you thought about, or is there any uh, research in the past that will give us some insight in, as to what might be some side effects that might be negative from uh, using rapamycin? So in medicine today, rapamycin is used along with a few other medications, as you say, to stop organ rejection. So for example, if someone needs a kidney transplant, they will most often be on rapamycin along with the other medications to stop you rejecting that organ. It seems though that rapamycin is more used to make sure that those other medications work correctly or work more effectively. Mm -hmm. Using rapamycin by itself won't stop that organ being rejected. So in medicine, the dosages are far higher compared to what we're proposing in this trial. So in medicine, rapamycin is taken daily, whereas with what we're proposing, we only want short periods of time where we're trying to switch mTOR off. So that's why the once a week idea or intermittently comes in. So in terms of side effects, we expect that there'll be far lower side effects compared to what we're seeing in organ rejection patients. And again, we think a lot of those side effects are to do with the other medications, not necessarily rapamycin. Second point, we're using a much lower dose and it may seem odd in COVID times to be using a medication that might influence the immune system. There was actually an interesting human uh, paper coming out uh, that, that was done that was looking at the uh, response to the influenza vaccine. And they so they gave the influenza vaccine and half of them, they also gave rapamycin and the other half placebo. Because again, there's the theory that if you can use or, or tweak mTOR, you can improve your immunity and you can, there's this concept called immunosenescence. Essentially, that's where you're just collecting all of these old immune cells and you want to try and clear them away ideally. So with that trial, Unfortunately, they didn't see a, much of a benefit, but equally, they didn't see an adverse side effect. So that's why I think it's probably going to be safe to be using rapamycin intermittently, again, once a week, despite COVID times. However, I do want to emphasize that I don't think that rapamycin should be used outside of clinical trials. It's not proven yet. Um, and that's why I want to do the trial uh, that, that I'm proposing. So rapamycin has been tested, of course, and in the interventions testing program you mentioned uh, on mice, and it does show some lifespan extension. I had read a paper that showed something like 9% life extension in mice. Is that correct? I think it's a bit more than that. I think it's is closer it more? to 20%. Yeah. Oh, okay. 20%. Well, that is, it would seem as though we should get some benefits in other mammals as well. Uh, other research that you've heard of, I I think that there is a dog research program using rapamycin as well. Yeah. So there's the dog aging project that's run by Dr. Matt Cableine. Oh. So what that, so 
one of the things that they want to do is translate the, the lab data, you know, from mice into the real world. And what they're doing at the moment is encouraging uh, pet owners to actually enroll in this program so that you can either have placebo or rapamycin given to your dog. And again, it's in the real world with all of the different stresses that the real world entails. So we can actually see, would there be an effect in the real world as opposed to just in the lab? So I think it's a fantastic project that they're doing. And that's uh, ongoing and right now. That's ongoing right now. So that, that no data that I'm aware of has been published yet on rapamycin from that project. But again, it's, it's trying to translate the mice data in a sterile lab into the real world. And you're going to use a functional endpoint as success of the trial. Could you talk a little bit about that? I'm a big fan of functional uh, aging assessments over you know, biochemical or, or cellular uh, measurements of age. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? So let's take, for example, the new medication that has been uh, FDA approved for Alzheimer's. The trouble with that medication is that as far as I'm aware, there's no data showing that there's actually an improvement in cognition or, or a slowing down of that worsening. So yes, you might be able to see, you know, so-called positive changes on MRI scans, but unless that actually translates into better health for humans, there's no, there's not much point in taking this medication. So that brings us on to functional outcomes is that yes, we can measure all sorts of wonderfuls from the blood, but what what actually matters is will that translate to better health for us? Can, you know, will we be more resistant to disease? Can we do the activities that we want to do? Will we have stronger muscles? Those are the things that I think we should be measuring. So that's why we've chosen a functional outcome. So the primary outcome for this trial will be the 30 second chair stand test. So that's a test again, how many times can you sit up and then sit back down uh, in 30 seconds? So we chose that because that's more targeted towards older adults. So we actually slightly tweaked the age that we'll be looking at for this trial. So originally we were proposing 60 to 70, but we think that there's going to be a stronger signal in the data if we chose 65 to 85 year olds. So we, we wanted to have an outcome that can, um, yeah, that, that's more targeted towards them. So for example, if we were testing 20 year olds, we'd probably want the primary outcome to be how much can they bench press or something like that. Um, but for older adults, it makes more sense to have the 30 second chair stand test. Now for doing a functional test like that, it seems as though you could use different clinics around New Zealand, or around the world to, for people to participate. Have you thought about that? Wh where the cohort is going to come from is it just going to be at your clinic in New Zealand, so you can keep real close eye on uh, the whole process, or are you uh, engaging other clinics from around the world? What we want to start with is more of a safety and feasibility trial, so a phase two trial. And the reason for that is, yes, that there's a strong reason as to why we think that intermittent rapamycin combined with exercise will improve muscle performance. But we, we don't yet know that. So we, we want to do a phase two trial first to make sure that there's no side effects that we're not aware of. So rapamycin, it, it might worsen muscle performance, maybe. 
We don't know. And that's why we want to trial it. We don't think it will. We think it will improve muscle performance, but we want to do things properly. So we want to do a phase two trial, make sure that there's no adverse effects that we weren't aware of, and then and, and make sure that our study design is bulletproof. And then we'll need to do a multi-center trial because realistically, to, to make sure that this trial is adequately powered, as in we've got enough participants, I'm guessing that would need around 400 people which is a far greater and, and larger scale trial compared to what we're planning now, which is about 40 people. So this is a phase two trial with the rapamycin, a functional endpoint there, and you're trying to raise money now for this study. Where can people go to donate? We partnered with lifespan.io, which is a crowdfunding platform. So you can reach out to lifespan.io directly to donate to this trial or through my YouTube channel, we're actually using the YouTube fundraising function. So if you go onto any of my videos, um, there'll be a fundraising button that you can click to donate to the trial. And again, that's partnered with lifespan.io. So all of the money goes to them. If we want any of it, we have to invoice uh, lifespan.io uh, for the costs. And again, it's, it's to make sure that there's no bias in this trial. All right, Dr. Stanfield, thank you so much for joining us on the Longevity Now podcast. Good luck with the uh, trial coming up here. Hopefully we can get some money raised in the next few months. Thank you very much for having me. If you want to see more human research to help translate already known therapeutics into the marketplace, then do your part. Even if you cannot donate to this type of research, at least you can spread the word. Share this podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Justin Lowe.